Good evening. We begin again in our study of the life of Elijah. Turn with me in your copy of the Scripture to 1 Kings chapter 17. We'll read verses 1 through 7 uh, for context. This is on page 379 of the Pew Bible. First Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. Pay attention. Now Elijah the Tishpite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Kareth, which is in east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook of Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. You are faithful to it. Open the hearts of your people to receive by faith what you have prepared for them this evening. Would you feed your sheep, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. The New Testament writers present Elijah as a person of great importance and historical significance. His name is frequently mentioned alongside other important figures like Moses, John the Baptist, and Jesus Christ. And those of you familiar with the life of Elijah probably don't find that all too surprising, given his ministry was accompanied by so many great and powerful signs. But what should surprise you are the words of James when he says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I think these words are difficult for us to believe. Elijah hardly seems like a man at all. He reads, his life reads more like a myth, more like a legend. He's the superhuman superhero who stands alone against the forces of evil. He seems to control the weather and he can call down fire from heaven. And yet he was a real person in history. And the Bible is very clear. Elijah was a man like us. He comes from a people. He has a hometown, just like all of us do. He's human. He's a Tishbite, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. And we don't really know where the Tishbites lived, where Tishbe is. You, you can't really point to it on a map. We know it's somewhere in Gilead in the land east of the Jordan. 
But the important biographical detail in Elijah's life, in this introduction, which is very brief, is actually his name. With a name like Elijah, I don't think it's too much to assume that his parents at least professed faith in the Lord. Parents, usually mothers, they spend a lot of time thinking about what they will name their children. And so the child's name, it often reflects the hopes, the desires of the parents for that child. And so what did Elijah's parents hope for him? Elijah means my God is the Lord. And so every time Elijah's parents called out to him, Elijah, it was as if they were affirming God's promise to Abraham and to Moses and to them, I will be your God and the God of your offspring after you. We really don't know much about Elijah's family background, but we know enough about him. He is a man like us, and the Lord is his God. Previously, we considered the wicked life of evil King Ahab. He lived against God's word by taking that Sidonian princess to be his wife. Worse than this, he worshipped and served her Sidonian gods, Baal and Ashtoreth. And it didn't take long for him to build a temple and to erect an altar publicly in Samaria so that all of Samaria could join him in his public ball worship. And we remember he even allowed that cursed city Jericho to be rebuilt. Well, despite his name coming from the Hebrew word for love, Ahab did not have any love for the Lord. If anything, he loved sin. He loved committing one abomination after another in the sight of the Lord. Ahab's actions, you will remember, were so heinous that he won the title of most wicked king of Israel, surpassing his father and all the kings who ruled before him. Ahab's persistent disobedience and provocation of the Lord incited God's anger upon him and upon his people. And now this anger, it comes in the person and word of Elijah. He, he stands before the king and he pronounces this solemn oath, cursing the land of Israel. Look at verse 1. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The basic meaning of this curse is obvious. Elijah is saying that there will be a drought. But there's much more here than meets the eye. And so I actually want to spend the rest of this evening briefly considering this one verse. I had us read the whole context because there we see its fulfillment. At the end of it, we know that the drought has come. But in each part of this oath, we will see It says something about the Lord, and it says something about Elijah, and it says something about Ahab and his love for Baal. Elijah begins this oath by swearing in the name of the Lord, and he does this in part to convey the seriousness of his message. It's as if he's saying, what I'm about to say is no joke. This is serious business. I'm not making this up. Scouts honor God's truth. This act of swearing by God's name was actually 
This may come as a surprise to you, but it was commanded by the Lord. God told Moses, and Moses told the people. The book of Deuteronomy records it. It says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him shall you serve, and by his name you shall swear. Deuteronomy 6, 13. And in a society built upon reverence for God, taking an oath in his name was meant to promote honesty and to silence the mouth of liars. Of course, we know over time this practice became greatly abused under the pretense that the Lord's name was too holy to speak. The Jews would eventually begin the completely unwarranted practice of swearing by lesser things. Instead of swearing by the name of the Lord, they they would swear by heaven or by earth or by the throne of God. And it's against these sorts of false, lesser, and trivial oaths that Jesus will later say, Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Jesus, though, he's not forbidding oaths per se. As I've said, they were commanded, and we know that not an iota of God's law is abrogated by Jesus in his ministry. Jesus' point is simply that it would be better not to swear at all than to swear falsely, especially in small matters of daily life. Just be honest And so Christians today often are called upon to swear oaths or vows such as in marriage or church membership and baptism or military and government service. It's no sin for them to do so. But in daily affairs, they are simply to say yes or no and to be honest. Well, Elijah does not, unlike the other Jews, pretend to be wiser than the Lord. You never want to do that. Don't be wiser than the Lord. He fears the Lord, he serves the Lord, and therefore he swears by the name of the Lord, as he was commanded to do. His oath concerns a matter of great importance and significance, and so it is appropriate for him to swear by the name of the Lord. And in so swearing by the name of the Lord, it is as if Elijah is raising his right hand and promising to the king whom he addresses and to the people that are in the, in the crowd that, that what he is about to say is 100% the honest truth. By this oath, Elijah makes a strong affirmation, though, about the Lord. It's true, it's to strengthen the, the, the solemnity of the occasion and to say this is true, but there's more going on here than that. Ahab... You see, he had long abandoned the belief that the Lord lives. He never spoke the words, but all his actions screamed in a sermon louder than words could ever say, loud and clear, God is dead. The Lord is dead. His marriage to the Sidonian princess, his worship and service of Baal, and every other abominable sin spoke clearly what he really believed, regardless of his profession, was that the Lord... God is dead. Well, similarly, few Christians today would ever dare to say God is dead. And yet many who claim to know Him deny Him by their lives. They profess faith in the living Lord with their lips, but they deny Him by their actions. And so every single Christian, including you here tonight, should test yourself with the words written by the Apostle John, whoever says, I know him, but who does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Elijah swears this oath, and in so doing, he is confessing what he knows and believes to be true. Not just that drought is coming, but that the Lord 
lives. And in fact, both these truths are tied deeply together. It's because the Lord, in fact, is alive that the drought is coming. It's because Elijah believes the Lord lives that he can so confidently stand before the king and say this oath and curse with absolute certainty that it is true. As surely as the Lord lives, drought is coming. Ironically, worshipers of Baal believed their god was dead for at least part of each year. Baal would fight against another god named Mot, the god of death, and inevitably he would be defeated every year. And of course, he wouldn't stay dead. He'd be reborn in a cycle of life and death. But between the, the life and the, the, the death and the rebirth, there, there would be no rain. And in this way, Baal's death corresponded to the dry season. Basically, this was an idle attempt to try to explain the seasons. That's what's going on here. And Elijah is here to challenge these blasphemous, idolatrous ideas. Having sworn by the name of the Lord who lives, Elijah now invokes the Lord's covenant relationship. First, he swears by the Lord who lives. Second, he invokes the covenant relationship. The Lord who lives is also the Lord of Israel. He's the the Lord of all nations. He's sovereign universally over every people in every nation. But he is especially the God of Israel. He loved them. He chose them. He redeemed them and freed them from slavery in Egypt with His mighty right arm. He brought them on dry ground through the Red Sea, destroying the enemies that pursued. He led them through the wilderness so tenderly by the cloud in the day, the pillar of fire by night. He fed them food from heaven, manna from the sky. He let them drink from the rock which followed them. And that rock, we're told, was Christ. How abundantly God provided for His people all that they needed and brought them safely to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, God gave Moses a covenant. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And Moses went on to read this whole covenant to the people and each of them at the end said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. In other words, the the Lord is the God of Israel. They belong to Him, not to Baal. And Ahab has clearly forgotten these historical facts. The God of Israel had spoken clearly, you shall have no other gods before me. But Ahab thought it was a light thing to turn his back on the God of Israel and to break this covenant law. And so he went and worshipped and served Baal and he led Israel to do the same. Ahab's actions made it clear that he believed Baal, not the Lord, was the God of Israel. With this solemn oath, Elijah raises his voice in protest against the king and declares that the Lord who lives is the only God of Israel. God is not dead. He is alive and well. 
and his covenant with his people still stands. It has not expired. Baal is not the God of Israel. Now, especially relevant here as we we press on in our passage are the words concerning the covenant blessings and covenant curses that are found in Deuteronomy 28. See, as Israel was about to enter the promised land, the Lord renewed His covenant with Israel. But before He did so, He reminded them of the blessings and the curses which would come depending on whether they kept His covenant And concerning the blessings, Moses said, The the Lord will open to you His good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land and its seasons and to bless all the work of your hands. We live in a naturalistic, secular culture. We tend to think that rain just comes by natural processes from the water cycle. But we forget that behind those processes stands a living and sovereign God who governs all things by His providence, even things like the rain. All peoples, all peoples, all nations are dependent on the Lord. But the promised land of Canaan was especially so. His eyes were especially on this land. It was a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from water. It was the land that God, the God of Israel, cared for personally. From the beginning of the year to the end, how, how mindful the Lord, the God of Israel, was to care for His people. How desirous He was to bless them. Like a good father, He, he wants them to walk in a way which is good for them. And so He incentivizes obedience with blessing. He disincentivizes disobedience with curses. It's not how they entered into the covenant. But the path of blessing is the path of obedience. And what about the curse then? Moses says, The Lord will strike you with fiery heat and with the drought, and they shall pursue you until you perish. And he goes on to say, The heavens over your head shall be like bronze, and the earth beneath you shall be like iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land like powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So God had made a covenant with Israel, promising to bless them if they obeyed His commands and to curse them if they disobeyed. And Elijah reminds Ahab that this covenant relationship is still very much in effect. And implicit in this is the the idea that the way of blessing is still open to him. I left off the last sermon saying that it it ends with, with the impending curse and the prospect of death. And that's true. But if if Ahab did repent, that the path of blessing, of obedience, it was still open to him. Well, at first glance... It may seem as if Elijah has really no business speaking to the king. After all, he's just, he's just a guy like us. He's a Tishbite from Tishbite, Tishbe. He's a, he's a no one from nowhere. 
But here's the thing, Elijah's ability to stand before the king and to speak with such boldness is not based at all upon his family background or where he's from. Instead, it is grounded in something far more significant. His relationship with the Lord. Who who is Elijah? He is a man who stands before the Lord. He, He recognizes that everything he does, every word, every thought, every affection of his heart is laid bare before a holy and sovereign God. He is in the awesome presence of the majestic living Lord God of Israel. And his position before the Lord shapes his entire worldview and informs every area of how he lives Because Elijah is aware of God's presence, he seeks to align his thoughts, his words, his actions, his heart affections with God's word as it is revealed, his will as it's revealed in his word. He endeavors to live in obedience to his commandments. He knows that everything he does reflects back on his God. He stands before the Lord as a servant And so he wants to do his absolute best to represent him well in this world. In short, Elijah lives Coram Deo before the Lord. His family background, his birthplace, none of it means anything. His close relationship with God, it means everything. And consequently, the holy life he lives in his presence These are the only things that qualify Elijah to stand before this wicked king. He stands before the Lord. More than he stands before Ahab, he stands before the Lord. He is like a servant in the presence of his master. He isn't anyone important. And similarly, Paul says of the Christians in Corinth, And we apply it to ourselves today. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That is the calling of the Christian. Not because of who your family is or where you come from. Why does your life matter? What qualifies you to stand and represent the Lord God Almighty? Oh, because you are his people. You stand in his presence in Christ. So you may not come from an important or powerful family, but if you are in Christ, you have been called to stand before the Lord and to serve him with your life. And the reality is most of you, I, I, I genuinely hope, never have to stand before a wicked king. It's a dangerous situation to be in. But each of you will certainly Stand before a wicked world. And sooner or later, you're going to find yourself having to speak hard truths to dangerous people. Living Coram Deo is not always or really ever easy. It's not safe. It's not comfortable. It can mean standing up for and speaking towards unpopular truths. It often requires making difficult choices. But if you're called to be faithful to the Lord, you're called to be faithful to His Word, even when it's hard. Jesus calls you 
to be salt and light in the world, to stand for truth and righteousness, and to live your whole life in awareness that you stand in the presence of the living Lord, and He is your God. Elijah swore a solemn oath in the name of the Lord. He invoked the covenant relationship. He's identified himself as one who stands before the Lord. And now he declares the curse. He speaks hard words to a wicked king. He says, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And as I said in the beginning, this means there's going to be a drought No more rain, no more dew, at least not until Elijah says otherwise. And I want to ask, where did Elijah find the certainty to swear this oath? Where did he discover the confidence to declare this curse? Well, to answer that question, we must return to the words of James that I read in the beginning. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. But then he goes on. He prayed fervently. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. You see, Elijah found his certainty and confidence by reading God's Word and by praying God's Word. Elijah knew God's Word warned against idolatry. He knew God's Word threatened the curse of drought. And when he learned of Ahab's idolatry, he did what any faithful servant of the Lord should do. He sought the Lord's face in prayer, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. In other words, he prayed for God to be faithful to his word. This is perhaps the the Old Testament equivalent of uh, thy will be done. How do we know how to pray thy will be done? Well, you read God's word, which reveals his will, and then you pray it. Well, he prayed God to be faithful to his word, but in this case, faithful to God's word meant the execution of the covenant curses, which were threatened for idolatry. And so Elijah prayed fervently that the drought and dust, famine and fiery heat that was promised, that was threatened, would come upon the land. This is a prayer of imprecation. And I wonder if this is the sort of prayer any of us would be willing to pray. Many Christians have admired for a long time Elijah's example to us as a man who was fervent in prayer. But how few are willing to pray like him? Should we really be surprised when sin abounds in our world, when the the church fails to pray with imprecations? It's true, imprecations probably shouldn't be our first prayer, They probably shouldn't be our last prayer, certainly not our only form of prayer. We're to pray for mercy, pray for grace, pray for repentance and conversion. Yes and amen. 
But when we see idolatry and unbelief running rampant in the world, in our own land and even in our own church, it is our duty as Christians to pray to the Lord our God, to be faithful to His Word, not just the blessings. Paul says of false teachers, let them be accursed. Where did he learn that? Well, Jesus says of unrepentant cities, scribes and Pharisees, woe to you. These are imprecations. And of course, the Psalms are full of many such prayers. Well, in wrapping up, let us not be wiser than the Lord. Let us swear by the name of the Lord when it is good and right to do so, when the situation requires of it. And let us pray fervently to the Lord with imprecations when necessary. And let all of us always stand before the Lord in holiness, knowing that our prayers, the prayers of a righteous person were promised, have great power. And indeed, whatever we ask in Jesus' name, He will give. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the life of Elijah and how he is an example to us of a man fervent in prayer. And oh, how You're going to, lo- how you're going to use him, Lord, in the chapters to come to turn Israel away from their sin. That they would decide that the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And how You do so, Lord. How You you bring revival and repentance and a return to covenant faithfulness through Elijah's imprecatory prayer. Would You use this to encourage us, Lord, that as we pray these hard prayers, You will bring revival even to our own land, perhaps, Lord. That You'll purify Your church. That You will convert the lost, and restore sinners to your name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.